0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Palm Peeps. Been another week or so, and very excited to be back for a great uh, additional topic. Hey, Christina, how's it going?
1: Hey, Berth, doing good today. Uh, Yeah, I'm excited as well. Today's episode is another one of our top consult series, which I think we really liked. And today we're going to be talking about pneumothorax. So I know that this can come up for a lot of people, um, you know, throughout training, and definitely was a common um, kind of consult throughout fellowship. And I know it can be very daunting for people, so we wanted to try to walk through it and help simplify things. And thankfully, for you and I are joined by some experts today and have some help, so we're so excited to be um, joined today by Dr. Christine Argento. Christine is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital and is one of the most amazing interventional pulmonologists that I know. She's so skilled and I think is going to have a lot to offer um, for our listeners today. So Christine, welcome to Palm Peeps. Thank you so
2: much for having me. What an introduction. This is amazing.
1: (laughs) Thank
0: you. And next we have Charlie Murphy. Charlie received his medical degree from LSU School of Medicine in New Orleans and completed his internal medicine residency at the Montefiore Einstein Internal Medicine Residency Program in New York. He is currently a pulmonary and critical care fellow at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Medical Center, and is one
3: of the chief fellows there. It's great to have you on Palm Peeps, Charlie. Good to be here. Thank you, uh, Dave and Christina, for having me. Big fan of the pod, so it's cool to be a part of this.
1: Thanks so much, Charlie. And before we get into um, our first, our further discussion, I just want to have our disclaimer for everyone that this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the opinions um, are our own do not reflect our employers, and the cases referenced today are going to be HIPAA compliant with some details that may have been changed.
0: oh consult's coming in. All right. We have a 26-year-old man named Barry who came to the emergency department with acute onset of shortness of breath. He quickly had a chest x-ray done and there was a right-sided pneumothorax. So they paged you as the pulmonary consultant fellow. Charlie, when you get this page, what are like the first things that go through your head? You know, you have a page, you're running around, you're going to have to see this patient, pneumothorax comes in. What are the first things you're going to want to talk to them about and assess the patient?
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, whenever you get, called to see any patients, probably the most important first consideration is how sick are they? You know, are they stable or are they in distress or are they coding? You know, there's obviously a huge variation and and pneumothorax, like many things we see in pulmonary critical care medicine is life-threatening. So these patients can be at death's door when you get called or they can be, you know, totally asymptomatic uh, with stable vitals. So, you know, the stability of the patient is always important, but with respect to pneumothorax, you know, it certainly can impact how you manage them. The so first is like how stable are they? Next, you should ask yourself as you're walking to see them. Do you know if this patient has any underlying lung disease? You know, obviously, the first thing we think of when managing a pneumothorax is uh, placing a chest tube, but not every one of these patients needs a chest tube. And you know, one of the kind of branching points for when we decide whether to place one or not is whether or not there's like a quote primary uh, spontaneous pneumothorax in somebody with no lung disease, or whether it's uh, quote secondary in somebody who has underlying lung. People who have Underlying lung disease, I would say, generally tend to have lower cardiopulmonary reserve, and so you might be uh, willing or I think uh, interested in uh, pursuing like a definitive intervention with a chest tube in them than you would in somebody who's like healthy uh, otherwise with the primary pneumothorax. And then some of the lung diseases we think about that are associated with pneumothorax first, I think in our population would be COPD, but then you know yep. different types of ILD. Cystic lung diseases like LAM, Langerhans, du bay, cystic fibrosis, and then some infections like TB and classically uh, PJP pneumonia can lead to pneumothoraces. And then third, an important consideration is how big is a pneumothorax? Those that are smaller tend to be, you know, more easily managed conservatively, whereas those that are bigger, you know, more likely are, need to, are to need tube. To. And I think the the cutoffs people use can vary depending on who you talk to, but uh, generally you'd say three centimeters at the apex between the visceral and the parietal pleura, or two centimeters between the visceral and parietal pleura at the level of the hilum are your sort of cutoffs for a large pneumo. And then last, is this the first pneumothorax or is this the recurrent pneumothorax? Because if it's a recurrent pneumothorax, then they're more likely to need some sort of dependence Um So I think those are the four main considerations when, uh, you know, going down to see a patient with the pneumothorax.
1: Thanks so much, Charlie. That's a great approach, kind of what factors to consider. You know, and I think definitely kind of how we approach all of our uh, top consults here is really kind of focusing on the clinical stability of the patient, as you mentioned. So for this patient, you know, I know you're concerned and you get to talk to the consultants a little bit more, um, and we have some more information available. So I will say that this gentleman um, is tachypnic to his mid-20s. So um, tachypnic to respiratory rate of 26 to 28. He was saturating 80% on room air. So he was put on nasal cannula and is now 95% on four liters. He's tachycardic with a heart rate of 120 um, and EKG was confirming sinus tachycardia. Blood pressure was 145 over 85. We only have limited history, but he reports that he's never had anything like this before. Uh, so you quickly pull up his chest X-ray and you notice that the pneumo was five centimeters from the apex. So I don't know, Charlie, that could be kind of scary or concerning for anyone being um, the pulmonary consultant. So as you said, you, you, ta- you told us to assess the stability. And it sounds like he's pretty unstable. And Christine, I'm sure you get a lot of pages like this on a daily basis. If you had a patient like this and you were seeing them in the ED, what would be your approach to the patient? So this is really a common scenario, something that I see all the time. And and people do really
2: struggle with this. So, I guess I think about it in terms of whether this patient is stable, more urgent, or emergent. And in this patient's case, I would probably classify them as urgent. They're certainly not stable. They're requiring oxygen, they're tachycardic. And so this wouldn't be considered a stable pneumothorax patient. Also, the size of the pneumothorax is pretty large. And so you would think that this patient needs some sort of intervention. Uh, just as Charlie mentioned earlier, three centimeters since his is really our typical cutoff to define a large unit. You know, since so, five centimeters. I wouldn't, however, call this patient emergent, meaning that they are relatively hemodynamically stable, or stably unstable, I guess you would say. They're requiring oxygen and tachycardic to picnic, but, you know, they're signing 95% on oxygen. Um, Their heart rate is not, you know, 150, 160, and their blood pressure is definitively. They're hypertensive, not hypertensive. And so I think you have some time, and you don't have to do emergent procedures for this particular patient. And so when I think about an emergent situation, I think about needle deconception. And if I'm thinking about an, an urgent situation, I'd probably head straight to a chest tube, and I wouldn't do a needle deconception. So I think in this patient, I would look and say, this is an urgent case that does require tooth thoracoscopy and should have a chest tube placed.
1: That's great, Christine. And I think kind of a helping branching point to kind of differentiate, you know, urgent versus emergent and when you would do a chest tube versus needle thoracostomy. And, you know, I know a lot of people may not be familiar with having to do an emergent needle decompression, as you mentioned. Would you be able to walk us through that? Sure. So... Uh, It's a pretty quick procedure because it's an emergent thing. Um, So
2: basically what you want to get is an angiopath some form of needle. And you want it to be large enough gauge that you can decompress and let the air out relatively quickly. Because, again, these are the patients that are in emergent situations. So either they're hypotensive, um, they're tachycardic, but really tachycardic, and they're not at all stable. You're worried that they are going to code at any moment. that's when you're really going to use your control compression. Also, if you're thinking it's going to, they're heading in that direction and you don't have a chest tube available or you don't have the expertise to place a chest tube in the next little bit so that you feel that the patient's unsafe, that's when you want to do it. So what you need is an antipack. Typically, we think about 14 or 16 gauge, um, but anywhere from 10 to a 16 gauge, with which, whether that's a needle or an angio pets are a little bit better, just because they're a little bit longer. And uh, especially in the American population, we think about, you know, needing a little bit more uh, needle to get through the chest wall than the average uh, American patient. And so what you would typically do, and I, I mean, it's emergent. So if you don't have the chlorhexidine or betadine or whatever present, uh, then you could skip that step, but most of us would try to use ferhexidine or betadine to just, you know, quickly wipe off the area. You're going to go into the second intercostal space in the mid clavicular line. So, to be fair, if a patient is in having a tension uh, on the thorax or they're in its and it's an emergency situation, you can pretty much put your needle anywhere. Um, but really, the traditional space would be the second intercostal space in the mid clavicular line. You want to just clean that area if you can and if you have time and otherwise just stick that needle in and you should hear a nice big there. Then you're going to leave that in and meanwhile, get supplies to place the test tube. Um, so you would never do a needle thoracoscopy or needle decompression and not follow it with the test tube.
1: That was going to be a follow-up question I had for seeing <laughs> kind of what do we do after you decompress with the needle? And uh, you answered that for us, so definitely... Plan on getting a chest tube um, inserted immediately after. Thank you so much for going through that. Yeah,
0: Oops. Yeah, and I think that's a really nice tip about the fact that, like, if it's a really attention pneumo and you've seen on an x ray, it's pushing everything over. I think, like, the most common question I get is, like, where's that second space? But if it's really attention, I mean, you just get it between a rip, right? <laughs> get the air.
2: it's between a rip. And honestly, if you can go laterally, if you feel a little bit more comfortable, then, you know, you don't want to go through breast tissue and you know, certainly you don't want to get the part or whatnot, but, um, you know, so try to go a little bit higher. So the second or third intercostal space is not, neither of those are going to be problematic. Um, and then you can go laterally if you need to, but the traditional teaching.
0: So luckily, as you said, this patient was urgent, not emergent, and there were providers around, so he was able to get a chest tube placed. Um, so had the chest tube, there was air that came out initially and it immediately sort of felt better. So, Charlie, going back to you, once you have the chest tube in place, it seems like that sort of urgent situation is is solved. But what's going to be the next step for our providers, you know, taking care of a patient who now has their chest tube?
3: Yeah, important question. Um, You know, I've been in a situation where I had to do an emergent uh, needle decompression, as uh, Christine just described, and you connect the two, you know, I I put in the um, angiocath, And the patient got immediately better and on the back and then remembered that the pleural, intrapleural space is negative pressure. And as soon as you evacuate enough air that there's no longer tension, that space is going to suck air back in from uh, outside the patient unless you connect whatever tube you have there to something. And that same principle applies with the chest tube. So once you have the tube in place, this is sort of like taking steps back for a lot of people. But I think it's important to kind of remember the logistics of what your chest tube that you have connected to the, in, the intrapleural space needs to be connected to uh, in order to like definitively solve your problem. And typically we think of like a chest drainage system, like a Pleuravac, and the Pleuravac has three chambers. And the first chamber that in the Pleuravac that connects to the patient is your collection chamber. And that if you have fluid in the space, like for an, a fusion or, you know, hemothorax, that's where that uh, fluid is going to get collected. But air also passes through there into the second chamber, which is the water seal chamber. You know, the water seal chamber, just as it sounds, is an area of the drainage device that is full of water or saline. And uh, the idea is that air can get out without getting back in. And, and a way of thinking about how this works is like if you are drinking through a straw, you breathe out the straw, you'll see bubbles pass into the whatever you're drinking. But if you suck in through the straw, you're not going to suck air, you're just going to suck fluid. And so the water in the water seal chamber prevents air from getting back into the patient while allowing it to leave. And it's in the water seal chamber that we evaluate for an air leak, which when present indicates that there's still air in the intraporal space, uh, i.e. the pneumothorax not solved. And then the third chamber that's most distal um, in the chest drainage device or pleurovac is the suction chamber. And that's where you control, uh, whatever suction that you're applying. You know, I think it's also worth noting that most of the time we connect our chest tubes to a uh, pleurovac or uh, another chest drainage device, but in, um, you know, rare cases, you can connect it to uh, just a Heimlich valve, which is basically it functions the same way as, uh, the water seal uh, chamber without suction, where it allows air out without going back in. So back to our patient. We have a chest tube in place. That tube needs to be connected to something. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I'd connect it to like a, a chest drainage uh, system, a pleurovac. Probably apply you know negative twenty centimeters of water suction to ensure that we are uh, evacuating pneumothorax while uh, ordering a, a chest X-ray to ensure that the tube is in place and that the pneumothorax is uh, resolved or improving. Having said all that, I will say there is some variation in guidelines and, you know, talking to different people about whether or not somebody who's relatively stable with a pneumothorax needs to go straight to suction or whether it's more appropriate to just start uh, by having them on water seal. Um, My current, or I would say my preferred practice is to put them on suction at least until you see an x-ray confirming, you know, that the pneumothorax is improving um, after the chest tube has been placed. I think it's just a safer option, but
0: we were talking about this before and i think it partly it seems great you could just go to water seal if they're up but i also feel like it's also the run of the mill in the hospital like you're running around you're not sure you don't know who's going to be watching the patient and the next chest x-ray so i think if you know that they're going to be under good observation then going not, not suction but a lot of times i feel like i just put it on suction so i feel safe and comfortable that the patients yeah. in a good spot yeah I
2: totally
0: yeah, agree
2: but i will say is that Depending on the size of the if it's standing pretty rapidly. I mean, some of the patients really have it's kind of, um, and taking the suction off. can be really with that, And so if you're suffering with a lot of pain, taking the suction off as long as the lung lumbar yeah, can be, really so you may want to take them off suction if that's sort the of scenario. I would, because you want to make sure you're not going to put them in a bad spot again. You know, that's sort of one of the like hate small like, water skills.
1: Thanks so much, Charlie and Christine. I think we had that was a great discussion. You know, talking about how to manage uh, and approach a patient with an unstable pneumothorax who required urgent chest tube. You know, I know that's not the only type of pneumothorax, though. So fortunately, we have another um, we have another consult coming in. Um, so just as we were getting very settled in, we get another page. So probably like the, your, your typical IP pager, I think, going off today, Christine. Um, the, this is Barry's cousin, Larry. So Larry's a 22-year-old gentleman. He's also presenting with shortness of breath and has some chest pain. Thankfully, though, Larry's more stable. Um, he has a normal heart rate in the 80s. He's normotensive and he's saturating 96% on room air. And he has no evidence of tachypnea. Currently, he was breathing 12 to 14 times a minute. He has a chest x-ray that shows our, what is being read as a small pneumothorax, but you're having trouble um, pulling the image up. He does say that he has no significant past medical history, has never had a pneumothorax before, um, but he does smoke one pack per day of tobacco and occasionally smokes marijuana. So Christine, based on what Charlie talked about um, and told us before, how, how would you classify this second patient and what would be your next steps in management?
2: So, the first thing I think about again is: is this patient emergent, urgent, or stable? And I think clearly pointed out that this patient falls into the stable category. Hemodynamically, you can rock solid. You don't have to run or rush everywhere. So, with this patient, you certainly have time. So, the fact that you can't necessarily see its exterior right away, your fold is small, is reassuring, and you can take some time to gather your evidence and get And so the way I then approach these patients is thinking about, as Charlie saying, as I mentioned earlier, is this a primary or secondary uh, of second us? And then the other classification we think about is spontaneous or iatrogenic. And so and iatrogenic flash that, right? So um so primary spontaneous could probably fit this patient the best. Uh, Larry is young, uh, and so although he smokes a fair bit, um, which is certainly a risk factor when you think about New York, um, <clears throat> he hasn't probably smoked long enough to have terrible destruction in his lungs, um, unless he has some underlying lung disease that we have not uh, discovered based on his history. Or that he had some terrible destructive lung disease whether he has cystic fibrosis or a or something, some other form of disease that's there, rare, he would probably know to tell you that. So since he's not telling you that, we can probably assume he probably doesn't have any significant underlying lung that we know about. But certainly smoking is one of those things that would put him at risk. And What kind of risk is that? I mean, smoking would be a 12% lifetime risk increase. In uh, developing more. So, wow. and, it's, and it's really dose related. So, depending on how much you smoke, that could be uh, more or less. So, if you have a light smoke industry, you have a seven times better risk than most people do, you know, they mean thorax. If you have a moderate smoke industry, and if you're a heavy smoker, so if you more, and you think about a 102 times higher risk than the normal average first so smoking is a really big risk here that you've got in him. And even though he hasn't been necessarily diagnosed with, him, he's somebody that you think about, you know, sort of working up at some point to look for some small bloods and things that are probably. Been. But just on the surface, if you're seeing this patient, you probably classify him as a primary spontaneous number, so no significant underlying lung disease. Spontaneously developed, no trauma, no procedures, nothing else happened. So can we fall into that primary scan for us?
1: Thanks, Christina. I I was not aware um, of the kind of the dose dependence and the, the 12% risk of um, increase of pneumothorax with, with smoking history. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, and I do want to have, ask you a follow-up question. You know, since we're thinking that this is a first episode of primary spontaneous pneumothorax, um, do you, is it common then to kind of do further workup or evaluation for a patient like this? Um, if you're concerned about underlying lung disease, I guess, what what would be some things that you would consider? Like
0: and follow up with Monty, I feel like that question comes up like a lot for like non-smoker, you know, if it's a man or a woman, they come in with a new pneumo, like what do we do after?
1: So you want to think about...
2: How often will primary spontaneous newborax with birth? And it's 25 to 50% recurrence rate, usually within the first year. And so typically, you know, what we do is think about if they do have any risk factors of snipping, as in this gentleman, then you may want to consider a CAT scan and try and see if you can identify bloods or anything else that would have predisposed this patient to a other people don't necessarily do a, uh, an extensive work for primary spontaneous thorax You can fix it um, and then try and decide, does this patient, you know, will fire anything further and if the history and the imaging doesn't suggest much else. You tend to leave it at the imaging and then follow them up in clinic. And typically, you know, and I always follow your patients up in clinic, so have them Follow up, short term follow up, so we test test X-rays to make sure the X hasn't really accumulated, and then uh, if everything is fine, they can either follow up as needed, um, so if they ever have symptoms again, or if you're being a little bit more conservative or cautious, you can say follow up in six months or a year, um, and just with another X-ray and just make sure that everything then you know that everything is nice and stable with these good. In women, you also have to think about abdominal you know, and pneumothorax. Um, and so also talk to them about, you know, is this the period of time that they're are, that they're having their menstrual cycle? You know, within a few days of that, um, it's not as uncommon as we think. And so, uh, so it does come up a fair bit. Uh, I see generally like three to five patients like that and, you know, in a year or two. So it, it's it's certainly not completely
0: uncommon to see that. So you do want to sort of ask questions about that. Well, yeah, kind of menial pneumothorax is going to be on my list of diagnoses that <laughs> to, to consider to make one day before. I'm fine, but, um, okay. This is great. So it sounds like we have a 22 year old man, no past medical history, except for some smoking. And then we've, you know, sort of all said primary spontaneous pneumothorax was clinically stable. We finally pull the chest X-ray up, and we take a look, and it, it's small. It's at 2.5 centimeters from the apex, and we've talked about that before, that we put them in the small category. The team is consulting you, said pneumothorax, and they're asking for a chest tube. So, Charlie, what are you going to do for this patient?
3: I hate to disappoint our uh, primary team's consulting up, but I think <laughs> this guy, uh, I, forget, I think it was Larry or Barry, um, Barry <laughs> uh, is probably best without a chest tube like our first patient who's hypoxemic tachypneic tachycardic with a large pneumothorax. This guy, you know, he's clinically stable with a pneumothorax that's less than three centimeters. So I think we can feel confident that he's going to do okay um, without a chest tube or a needle to uh, drain the air. And in fact, doing so might cause more harm than good. We can, you know, consider applying supplemental oxygen to help resorb the pneumothorax more quickly. Some lung trivia that uh, I recently learned is that This, the way this works is actually by creating a nitrogen gradient. 100% of Bio2 increases the partial pressure of oxygen in the alveolus, which decreases the nitrogen partial pressure. And that causes a nitrogen gradient between the alveolus and the pleura that leads Mm -hmm. to air moving in, um, can help resorb things more quickly. But yeah, other than some uh, oxygen and then repeating an X ray, you know, after some hours of observation, uh, I think that is like how I would limit my intervention on Larry and uh sadly I don't think we get to place some tube. yeah, yeah it never, just
2: yeah. took away the pimping question of like every broken oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rounds are forever ruined oh. <laughs> <laughs> all
3: the nitrogen fans easy. out there are, are pleased because I feel like we don't talk about yeah. <laughs> nitrogen content it's too much in the air that we breathe
0: that's great and so and then just a quick follow, you know, for both of you, just because this always comes up on the practical end of things. One, I feel like we say, oh, 100% oxygen. And then I, I've gotten the page a bunch of times be like, okay, what is their O2 setup to be? Should they be on high flow? Do they need BiPAP even? have <laughs> asked for before. Um, and then where where do they need to go? Do they have to be in the I, step-down unit or ICU because they need 100% oxygen or, or where are we manage these patients? So those practicalities, okay, if you could comment on them.
2: I think hundred percent of bio two is helpful. And the reason why is it just increases your rate of absorption. So for all the reasons that Carly just, just demystified for everybody. Right. 100% of bio two actually really helps. It, it, it's still slow. It's so slow to reabsorb, but it, it definitely helps, you know, where your patient has to go, whether they need to go in a step down or an IC, really going to be dependent on your institution.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I think you want to give 100% FiO2. I have seen the mistake where non-invasive, like BiPAP was placed, which is uh, not a good idea in somebody with a pneumothorax, like applying positive pressure to the system that can, you know, worsen the pneumothorax. I think just like a simple 100% percent non rebreather mask should be fine. Uh, it's low pressure and 100% FiO2. And then, yeah, it kind of depends on where the sort of medical... Um or hospital you're operating at, uh, and some patients you know might require admission. This guy who's you know pretty young, no other medical problems. You you might even be able to discharge them from the emergency room after uh, you know hours of observation if like follow up X-rays reveal no worsening of the pneumothorax and you think you have like a reliable close follow up.
1: Thank you both for walking us through that. Uh, this patient was placed in a hundred percent non rebreather as you mentioned, Charlie. Um, he was ended up. He was admitted to medicine for twenty four hour observation. The pneumothorax remained stable. He did get an X ray the following morning. Um, he continued to feel well overall and was discharged to follow up in clinic. Uh, he was advised about the risk of smoking and given information um, about Chantix. Christine, I want to ask you though. At this time, I know in our first case you did talk about you know um, in an emergent situation doing needle decompression specifically if there's tension physiology, but for, uh, want to change the scenario a little bit and say for this current patient who was stable, but if he had a large pneumothorax on x-ray, but was overall thermodynamically stable, um, would that change your thinking at all? And would you ever consider catheter aspiration, or can you talk a little bit about that
2: for our listeners?
1: Yeah. So
2: I think if you have a large pneumothorax, which again, you know, we think about as anything more than three centimeters from the apex of the lung or two centimeters from the hilum of the lung, which sort of indicates about a 50 percent volume size um, to put that sort of into context. It's hard to sort of judge your volume um, when the lung's waxing. Um, but with a large pneumothorax the chance of that sort of re-expanding on its own and everything else is is so much lower. Um, so you definitely want to intervene in either place a chest tube or you can, like you were saying, you can do a proper aspiration or a normal aspiration. Um, in the U.S., we tend to prefer to custody, um versus the aspiration. However, our colleagues in Europe really do quite a fair bit of aspiration. And honestly, their patients tend to do well. You feel like the chest tubes really do tend to Evacuate the florals is a little better if you're manually aspirating air. And it's a little bit hard to quantify, but they're saying that if you if you evacuate, let's say, two and a half liters of air, that chance that you're going to probably like properly evacuate in the pneumothorax is pretty slim. Um, so, in that case, once you get to about two, two and a half liters, you're thinking you uh, have probably a persistent and you're going to need a test tube. But you can absolutely, and I have done it sometimes. Um, let's say you have a, you can use a kit. You can use antidecapular and just start um, taking, taking the air out with a syringe and just mending that pneumothorax. You can certainly do it. So you a lot about our patients going cold um, and then their pneumothorax reaccumulating and they're not here for you to intervene if anything goes wrong. They've also, you know, in the bigger context of healthcare, right, VR um, visits, the time it takes, the money, it costs for the patients to come back and forth, um, maybe for the day. And so we're really trying to make sure that we sort of take care of this in the are asking. But it certainly works. And like I said, in Europe, they've been quite successful um, doing the manual aspiration of these. Um, the risk is really just
0: that it's just, you may not fully evacuated in the acting. Thanks for going over. And I feel like I always see those trials and then they, and you said it so uh, well, it's like it all depends on the context and who your patients are and what resources you have. So it's great to hear your opinion. All right, man, busy day. So we have another patient who's coming in. Larry and Barry are all set, but this time we have a page from a medicine floor for Carrie, uh, a 54 year old woman. Who has been admitted with a COPD exacerbation. She has emphysema, she's not on home oxygen, and she came in two days ago with worsening shortness of breath and an increased productive cough. She's been treated with nebulizers, she's on azithromycin and steroids, and she's been on supplemental O2 while she's been in the hospital, but she never needed to be intubated or or BiPAP or anything. This morning, she had a coughing spell and significant chest pain, and then a chest x-ray was obtained afterwards, given uh, the complaint that she had, and she has a moderate sized left-sided pneumothorax. She's now on 10 liters and she's tachyptic to 26. She's been mildly tachypneic throughout her say, the heart rate is one Oh five and her blood pressure is unchanged. So Charlie, you walked us through your initial approach to patient with a pneumothorax before. Uh, and you said those four different categories are have to evaluate the patient. So how would you evaluate this patient and apply some of those principles?
3: You know, I talked earlier about the distinction between primary and secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces, and this is like a, you know, classic example of a secondary spontaneous pneumothorax from somebody who's got uh, you know, significant underlying emphysema. This, you know, I, I liked Christine's earlier breakdown of urgent versus emergent versus no need for chest tubes uh, when it comes to patients with pneumothorax. And I would say that this lady needs a chest tube urgently. <laughs> you know, she's uh, significantly hypoxemic on 10 liters. She's tachypneic. She's uh, tachycardic, although her blood pressure is okay. Um, but patients, like I said earlier, with um, underlying lung disease like Carrie, you know, they just have less uh, cardiopulmonary reserve and so can't uh, deal with a pneumothorax that has not been controlled with the tube or drainage for long unless it's like very small. So I would plan on placing a, a chest tube uh, in this patient.
1: Thanks, Charlie, for, for walking us through that. And you know, I think that's important um, point that you brought up, just people with underlying lung disease and just they may have a more limited cardiopulmonary reserve, such as our patient. Uh, so she does end up getting a bedside pigtail catheter and the chest tube is placed to a negative 20 suction, like you mentioned before, Charlie. Christine, I do want to ask you, though, um, You know, Charlie mentioned that this is a secondary thorax. And since you've cared for so many people with pneumothoraces in the past, what are some other common predisposing conditions that our listeners should be aware of? Well, so by far and the
2: the most common is C for sure. Um, so that's probably correlates with, you know, probably or even more of the patients that get in have some have some emphysema, and it really correlates with the severity of the disease. The more severe the C for your emphysema, the more likely a super definitely uh, Other things to think about, so interstitial lung disease, and definitely getting thorax cystic fibrosis, they have sort of a three to four percent overall risk of neanothorax. Um, and that increases with in age, so now that we have better treatment options for these patients, um, if they live to be a almost 20% of them will have experience with thorax um, so that's another sort of neat population that we see quite Um But any sort of cystic lung disease that today, GLAM, um, all of the uh, underlying lung disease, and also can be predisposed. Catamineal, if you have endometriosis woman, women, a lot of those patients will end up And so we So it's, it's a pretty wide swath. <laughs> patients that we can, that we can see in the vaccine. And again, don't forget your smoke. Even if they don't have overt lung disease on CAT um, scans, they often have little sub blebs that can rupture. Them. So that's why the like smoking test is slow.
0: Right. So we've had a busy day. You know, we've had now two patients who've had chest tubes placed and a third that was managed conservatively. And both these patients now have their chest tubes to suction. And we've sort of talked about this in passing. We've talked about patients not needing chest two sometimes, sometimes we have to do drainage, but most often these patients will end up with a chest tube. And then we've mentioned a couple of times words like air leak and, and things like that. But I want to be sort of explicit about it now. So, Charlie, if you're following these patients, let's start with our first one, Barry. He was our patient who had a primary spontaneous pneumo, but was a little unstable, so he got a tube. What is the process for managing these chest tubes and, and specifically, and then for weaning them off and eventually pulling the chest tube out?
3: Earlier, I mentioned there's kind of three components to your standard, uh, chest drainage system or, uh, plurivac. There's a collection chamber a water seal chamber, and then a suction chamber. And then similarly, there's kind of like three different settings, if you will, that you can have a chest tube set up at. So you can have a chest tube set to suction and, um, Usually that's uh, where we start um, with our patients who have a pneumothorax where, you know, we uh, connect a wall suction or some other portable suction device to the chest drainage system. And then we can modulate the suction usually to minus 20, um, which is more negative than what your normal uh, intraporal pressure is. And what you want to be looking for uh, is whether there's uh, air still passing through the chest drainage system. And and we check for that by looking uh, in the water seal chamber uh, for bubbles. Um, And uh, if there are bubbles present then they have what's what's called an air leak, which means that, uh, you know, there's still air in the intraporal space um, and therefore the pneumothorax is still present. Another thing we're looking for is like, as we kind of evaluate next steps is like, what does the x-ray look like? So now that we have the tube in place and, you know, the suction is going, uh, does the pneumothorax look improved or resolved? If once you have somebody on suction and you see that there's no longer an air leak and the pneumothorax is resolved, then you can uh, consider putting them uh, to water seal, which means you basically just take them off suction, but the tube is still open, and so there's still uh, you know a system in place through which the air in the interpolal space from the pneumothorax can be evacuated through the chest drainage system. Um, and if this the air if there's still air to be drained uh, off suction, then they will have an air leak. Um, so you're evaluating the water seal chamber for an air leak. And then you're, when they're on just quote water seal, but off suction, you know, you're also uh, checking x-rays to see if uh, the pneumothorax remains resolved off suction. You know, once you feel confident that the pneumothorax is resolved, uh, on the water seal setting and you're getting, I think you're close to being ready to remove the t- tube, what you can do, it's called a clamping trial where you literally just clamp the tube, um, you know, between the drainage system and the patient. And so you're not definitely not gonna see an air leak anymore because the clamp is preventing air from passing into the chest drainage system. But what you wanna do is uh, after clamping, um, you know, check an X-ray and see if the pneumothorax has recurred. Uh, and if it has not, uh, after a certain amount of time, and you know, this sort of, you know, depends on where you're practicing and who's doing it. but. Uh, If the tube is, uh, if the pneumothorax is resolved and the tube has been clamped for some time, you can feel confident, uh, pulling the tube, um, and, uh, you'll feel confident that the the pneumothorax is not going to recur. You know, I think, as I mentioned, there's some, uh, variability, uh, in how long to how much time to spend in each step. I would, I typically, you know, it depends on how sick the patient is and, uh, you know, how large the pneumothorax was in the beginning. And how fast that they're kind of progressing through each step. But at a minimum, I would say I usually like to have a patient on suction for hours after I place the chest tube. And then if it resolves and they seem to be low risk, then I'll switch them to water seal. And I'd like to watch them for at least a day and water seal. And then if uh they're still progressing at that point um and uh it seems like the pneumothorax is resolved then uh, I'll clamp it and then, you know, repeat uh, an x-ray after it's been clamped for, you know, a few hours. And then if it's resolved, I'll I'll pull the tube. But, uh, you know, some people don't clamp at all. Some people want it clamped for 24 hours. You know, there's a lot of variability uh, in the timing of each step. But I think the sequential approach is the most support with the tube involves suction. And then water seal means the tube is open, but it's, you're not uh, adding extra (laughs) suction. And then clamped means the tube is in place, but you're not anything through it and those are the kind of the sequential steps to take uh when you have a chest tube in place for new
2: i agree with that the timing so funny like everybody wants a specific on um, how long should we put them on water to seal, how long do we put them on therapy trial but it's really dependent on how big the corax was how significant was it to their human so how stable or unstable were they with that and uh, you know what is their under? that is all gonna factor in to how long you're gonna treat these patients at each sort of subsequent step.
0: Right. I feel like <laughs> that good rule of thumb in medicine comes in. It's like if you're not sure, then and probably it's worth asking somebody and then you decide to it together.
2: And I think we all know that, right? The people taking care of these things, we all know there's there's no set rule, there's no set guideline. So those are calls that it really doesn't bother us at all to get those. Um, to say, you know, how long are we expecting to to do this trial? What are we looking for? What is our what sort of hoops does this patient have to get through before going to the next step? That's pretty common, and we don't have that at all because there is really no good step for. It.
1: Thanks so much, Charlie and Christine, for going through that. You know, and I think most most times, I think we can kind of you know um, situations are go smoothly where we can sequentially go through those three stages that you mentioned, Charlie. But Christine, probably a little bit more of a loaded question for you, Um, and I know it'll depend um, as well. But you know, what options do you consider for a patient who either has a persistent air leak um, or whose lungs are not fully re-expanding despite um, having a chest tube?
2: Yeah, good question. It's that is where it gets really tricky, right? So persistent air leak, we think about as for five days where they're still leaking air um, through the tube, and so they're. You know i sort of go through my list so we start with conservative management so supplemental oxygen chest tube um homework valves can be used they're really more outpatient than inpatient but they, they can be usually as an inpatient we attach them to um a collection device that so, we um, sort of gone with us um and you can use other things. So if you think a patient has a persistent air leak, so it's been five days, nothing's still revolving. You can do a blood patch where you take some of the patient's own blood um, and we'll inject it through the chest tube and hopefully that will seal up. Um, you can consider chemical pluridesis. Um, With that, you have to just consider, you know, again, who's your patient? How well are they gonna tolerate the <laughs> And is that fibrosis going to get in the way of any future plans for this patient? So if that patient would need chest surgery in the future or if they're ever going to be considered for a lung transplant, um, you want to think maybe avoid chemical or top fibresis, um, for those patients. And then there are a lot of sort of things that are not very common, use, but you can use different foods or tissue expanders, standards, forms, bloods, um, we do use um, endobronchial valves also for persistent air leaks, so um, that would be an off-label use. Typically, those are mm, if the patient is post-surgical, so if they've had an anatomic uh, resection of sorts, a lobectomy, et cetera, um, or they've had lung volume reduction surgery, um, and they have persistent air leaks in the valves are considered on-label. Uh, But I would say more than 90% of the valves that we place for persistent air leaks are off label. So it's for all of these kind of patients that have COPD or underlying lung disease that end up with a pneumothorax that doesn't quite resolve. Um, And if it's been days, if they're in the hospital, it's not resolving, you can consider placing these valves. They end up staying in place for six weeks. And ideally at that point, um, the leak should be uh, fixed or resolved. And then we the valve After that <clears throat> none of those things work it's about surgical options with that so they can look for the different bloods and take care of those and they can do either chemical and mechanical birdies, yes, as well.
1: thanks christine and one thing um i want to um have your having you, um uh, just weigh in a little bit more because i remember as a clinical fellow um i did have a patient actually who was diagnosed with lamb who had uh uh, pneumothorax requiring chest tube with a persistent air leak. And and as you mentioned, you know, we avoided pleurodesis in her just because she was being considered for a lung transplant. Yeah. Uh, but we did have a very kind of lengthy discussion at that time. And there were a lot of people kind of weighing in on, you know, should she get the Heimlich valve or not? But I know some people may not be familiar with what a Heimlich valve is or kind of, you know, if the patient has that outpatient follow-up, what, what does that look like?
2: Yeah. So Charlie mentioned it a little bit earlier as well. Really the Heimlich valve is essentially a one-way valve. So it lets air to come out of the chest, doesn't allow extra air to go back in. Um, so it's just attached to the very end of the chest tube um, that's outside of the patient. And um, again, it's just going to allow air to slowly but surely escape out of the chest um, without alir- allowing any pneumothorax to sort of reaccumulate it. And it's not through that. Chest tube, <laughs> And that sort of slow uh, drainage allows your visceral tear uh, to heal. You don't require, your patient has to be somewhat stable in order to put a hymn valve on. So um, if they're requiring continuous suction, that's not a good patient for a hymn valve. Your patient has to be able to tolerate essentially water seal. So if they don't need continuous suction, if they can, if they are relatively stable on water seal, and the pneumothorax also doesn't have to be completely expanded. I think that's something else that's really important for people to remember and consider is that a pneumothorax might be 90% of the way fully expanded and resolved, but there might still be a small pneumothorax that remains. And that just is going to take time to, re- you know, absorb and resolve. And that's okay as long as the patient is going to stable. So I don't mind if there's a little bit of a residual, you the lung doesn't have be fully expanded. But if they can tolerate water seal and are stable, not requiring oxygen, are able to ambulate the other things, then you can put a Heimlich like that on their chest tube and they can go home. If they are going to go home with a chest tube, you really want very close follow up. And so I typically see those patients on a weekly basis. Um, and you just want to really go through with them. You have to pick the right patient because they're going to go home with a chest tube that's not meant for long term use um that's typically used only in a hospital setting. So they have to be able to keep it clean, keep it, keep it dressed appropriately. And if you're sending somebody home with a pneumothorax and a chest tube, they have to know the warning signs. They have to have somebody around them that's gonna be able to bring them back to the hospital, you know, urgently if needed. Uh, but hopefully most of these patients by the time you would consider discharging them home with the valve would be stable enough that they could tolerate a little bit of a reaccumulation of in the be able to recognize it and come back into the hospital. The other thing that's probably a little bit more common um, than the Heimel valve, but is the same idea, is called a pneumostat. And it's just a really small collection chamber that again attaches to the end of your chest tube. Um, your patient, there's like a little well that you can put a few drops of saline um, or sterile water um, and it can check for an air leak so your patient can actually check if there's bubbling when they put the you know, sterile, sterile water into the well. If it bubbles, then there's still an air leak present. Um, but it's a little, just a, a little container that attaches to the chest tube. So if there's a little bit of thorough fluid that comes out, it doesn't leak onto them or onto their clothing. Um, they can drain it if the fluid is there. And, um, and it just kind of sits again like just underneath their clothing like that so that's probably used a little bit more common kind valve because behind the hymnoc valve again will leak floral fluid and all that stuff gets dislodged a little bit easier than the pneumostax so that's something that we also use for outpatients.
0: patients interesting that's a great review of the definitive management and then sort of the prolonged management we can do for these patients and when we kind of consider them so to, to wrap things up, Charlie, I want to go back to you. We, we sort of talked about this plan that we were doing for Barry, and he ended up his, having his lung fully re-expanded. The air leak resolved. His chest tube was clamped. No reaccumulation, It was removed. Thinking about Carrie, this was the patient with COPD and a secondary spontaneous pneumothorax. We just heard from Christine all of the things for definitive management, and we talked about the process that we normally go through for a chest tube. So any other considerations if it's a secondary spontaneous, do you just go through the same process or is there a different outbreak?
3: Uh, yeah, I'd say the pro, the the kind of the sequence of suction to water seal to uh, clamping is the same. You might be more careful and take kind of more time each step. And somebody like Carrie, who's, you know, got uh, less reserve than uh, Barry, who was like young and healthy with just a large spontaneous new Um So I think it's more of an art than a science, you know, how much, Time you spend in each step, and then you know, once you have control of the pneumothorax, patients who have uh, like syn underlying lung disease have uh, a higher risk of recurrence uh, of their pneumothorax because like the underlying problem that predisposed them to it is not gone uh, after you deal with the pneumo with the chest tube. And so uh, in addition to like you know maybe slightly more careful management of the chest tube that you placed, you might be more likely to refer uh, a patient with a secondary pneumothorax who's got significant lung disease for a definitive management with some of the things that Christine was talking
0: about. Well, this has been an incredible discussion. I really want to thank you both so much, Christine and Charlie, for walking us through all of this. I think it's going to be very helpful for the listeners. I know it's interesting for me. We like to wrap up with each episode just a takeaway point. um so we'll just kind of go around. You know, mine is kind of what you were just saying there, Charlie. It's if we have these algorithms, you know, uh, placing it, suction, water seal, clamping. Uh, sometimes you can do a drainage, sometimes you do a chest tube. But a lot, most important thing is, is looking at the clinical status and the underlying lung disease and reserve patient. And we're going to sort of adjust all of these uh, based on who that patient is and how they look. Timing. Monty, what about you?
1: Yeah, kind of Christine's point on the the risk of pneumothorax occurrence with tobacco um, is really resonating with me. So that was a, definitely a learning point for me. And thanks for bringing that up, Christine.
0: And Christine, one takeaway point for our listeners?
1: I would say just my
2: approach has always been, you know, to don't panic, kind of come into your situation and start categorizing your patients. So urgent, emergent, or stable, and then primary or secondary and start thinking about that because that's going to affect your full of folks um so if you can just start with a quick temporizing chin rather than can um everything will go much better.
0: great always good advice charlie to wrap us up
3: wow yeah you guys covered uh it. i think I'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention long ultrasound at all so if say somebody like carrie who's already in the hospital you suspect a pneumo you're waiting on the x-ray you know you can put a probe on them the sensitivity and specificity of lung ultrasound when you know looking trying to diagnose a rule pneumothorax is really good you know you're going to look for absence of lung sliding um the absence of lung pulse the presence of uh, lung points or barcode sign on m mode these are all you know in 30 seconds like uh the ultrasound uh, findings of the pneumothorax so you know, if you're waiting on an x-ray and you're really worried, uh, put a probe on. Amazing.
1: Thank can I have point. one more point?
3: Please. Yeah,
0: you can, have 10 <laughs>
1: more. can I get a bonus <laughs> point? <laughs> I like that a bonus point. So um, the, other, the other quick thing that comes up a lot in clinic with our pneumothorax patients are
2: about subsequent air travel. Um, so you want to think about uh, your pneumothorax needs to be resolved, like fully resolved for at least one week before you travel by air by airplane and then the other situation that comes up is uh, scuba diving Um, so unless you've had definitive management for any more if you've ever had one um, you should definitely never ever go scuba diving
0: that's great those are gonna be like the most important things that we (laughs) we talked about but i love it (laughs) Um, all right. Well, this episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montamayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. And we will see you next time.